0: Rocket Talk, the tourcom podcast. This is Justin Landon, your host, which should come as no surprise, unless this is your first time listening, in which case, surprise. Now on to this week's episode. Uh, it promises to be fun. I'm joined by someone who's actually been podcasting a lot longer than I have. Uh, he's a freelance writer, a former comic shops guru, and the co-owner of the Escape Artist Podcast Network, and I guess they're even outside of the podcast network now, uh, Alistair Stewart. Welcome. Hi, Justin. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. Thank you. So, uh, you're not a guy with a dozen of easily findable bios on the interwebs. I mean, I kind of had to, to search a little bit and read some interviews that you have done. So this is also true of me, so I can't really get on you for it. I hate writing bios of myself, but what did I miss? Well, well,
1: um, that's actually pretty comprehensive. The, the only big thing that that you missed, and this is almost a, a problem with the industry rather than with me having a bad bio is I do a lot of RPG writing, um, the, the two things I've done most recently were I wrote the Sixth Doctor source book for the Doctor Who RPG and I was the lead writer on the Tenth Doctor one. And, uh, I've actually got an, indiv- uh, creator-owned or at least creator-owned-ish game in, um, pre-production with a company called Genesis of Legend, which I'm really excited about. And I, I also have just started doing essays for Tor.com and I review TV for MCM bars, which is in the case of Gotham, often me watching it so you don't have to. Um, and that's about it. And, and of course the podcasting
0: as well. Yeah. R- RPG writing, man. I was at a writer event this, uh, this past weekend. They, there's a big writing retreat here in San Antonio every year. And so I go and crash it just to kind of say hi to the writers that are, happen to be in town. And, uh, yeah. Uh, you know, some of them wrote write for RPGs and it's like nobody, nobody really knows about that writing. Is it not? But why is that?
1: I, it's in a lot of cases, uh, it's because. And this will sound weirdly pejorative. You're servicing a trademark. I mean, most of the of the stuff which I've done, like I say, has been for the Doctor Who RPG. And I mean, even if I wasn't a fundamentally recalcitrant brick with confidence issues, I wouldn't expect my name above that. You spend and you make your peace with that. You spend an awful lot of time almost trading off the fact that you get to play in this really fun toy box for the fact that fundamentally it's it's work for hire, and it's work for hire where your name will categorically be on it, but outside a relatively small group of people who pay attention to who writes what RPG book, you're not going to get a tremendous amount of recognition for it. It's one of those jobs where the journey is its own reward a lot of the time.
0: Oh, which are the best kind, aren't they? Um, <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, the, the one thing I find most enjoying about it, though, is when you run into somebody who happens to pay attention to who writes the RPG books, and they get really, really excited about it. Oh,
1: I've I've had that. It was awesome. Um, Nine Worlds last year, I, I hosted a panel, and at the end of it this dude came up to me and went, You're Alistair, aren't you? Yeah. You wrote the
0: sixth doctor source book.
1: Yeah, I did. I loved that. And it just because it happens
0: so so very few times, it's always kind of a nice surprise. The guy I was talking to about it had that exact exact same reaction. Also the weird reaction of uh his his experience was that you know, Chuck Wendig, who also did a lot of RPG writing many years ago that he and uh, Wendig had subsequently run into each other in-, in this new life as actually trying to write fiction uh their own fiction and uh and then realized that they had known each other 10 years ago in the gaming world. Uh, oh that's cool. Which I imagine still pops up from time people like Murr and those who you know who writ- wrote a lot of RPG stuff back in the days probably do run into each other these days writing fiction. So that's kind of neat. All right, so uh, a couple years ago you Made a big leap, which is you went from hosting uh, PseudoPod to owning PseudoPod. Mm-hmm. Co- correct? Yes. All right. Walk me through that. What what uh, what took place then, and, and and why why did you decide to uh, walk the plank, so to speak, in terms of <laughs> choosing to own a uh, uh, a a fiction venue?
1: Um, A couple of things happened, really. Sometime towards the end of 2013, uh, we had a conversation amongst the... Because by this point, I was kind of editorial staff by default, because I'd been there a really long time. We had a conversation amongst the editorial staff and, and the kind of administrative folks that we had, which basically ended with this question. So, are we running out of money? Yes. This, of course, presented a problem, especially as when we had this conversation... We were on deck to run out of money six weeks after that. So, um, I ended up taking the lead in helping a lot of the other staff members pull together and put out a formal appeal, basically saying, please help us, we're dying, and we got this turned around. And that gave us a huge injection of goodwill and cash, which essentially secured the company for up to now, and certainly the foreseeable mid- to mid-term future. Now, at that time, I was particularly afflicted with a, a disease, which I, I suspect you're familiar with as well, which is freelancer problems, where you finish a job and then you have to go do another job. And a lot of the time that job will be for someone you've worked with before, but you still have to introduce yourself and treat it like something which, you know, you have to fight and, and kick and, and scrabble for. And that really dovetailed with the fact that when we had what I refer to as the company near death experience, I did some math of my own and I figured out pseudopod is the job I've held the longest. And I don't just mean in writing, I mean the job I've held the longest anywhere. And I'm really fond of it. I love it. It's a job that has helped me through some tremendously awful times in my life simply by being able to process this stuff and simply by the routine of it. And I really didn't want to see that go. So we got this, plateau of, you know, the, the money no longer being an issue. And we trundled along for about another year or so. And in that time, I was kind of formally named as publisher. And towards the end of that year, I began working with an author called Dan Sawyer, helping him out put together with a project that he'd pretty much done, but he just, he wanted a little bit of extra copy on it, which was crowdfunding uh, a Gail Carrigan novel. Because Gail had a YA novel that is fantastic, but that She'd had some trouble landing, and Gail and Dan know each other very well, and I knew Dan at one remove, and I knew Gail at one remove, and as a result, we ended up working together to bring this to market. And it worked. The Kickstarter funded, and you know the book's out. It's great. Um, but in the course of these conversations, and the same time, inevitably, I was on Skype with Dan an awful lot, and after a while, we both noticed that the first 20 minutes of any given Skype call would be, here's all the stuff I want to do with escape artists, and we haven't quite got around to it. So about six months into that, Dan went, why don't we just buy it? And we started looking at the legalities of it. And we started looking at who we would need to approach and what kind of capital we would need. And we put together something pretty solid. And we approached then Steve, now Sarah Ely, the owner. And due to a combination of me having, I think at that point, I was the longest serving employee. Um, Me being very experienced on the inside and Dan being pretty experienced on the outside uh Steve went yeah that sounds great you should totally take it and we got it in motion and that was that was brilliant so you know the sale was formally made um we took over we began expansion plans and across the course of this kind of 6 to 9 months after that what became very apparent was two things firstly we both had huge time pressures on our lives and secondly we both had honestly pretty different ideas on where we wanted the company to go so this got to the point where we had a conversation about it, and Dan went, well, this is obviously something that you care about slightly more than I do, so how about you buy me out? And we sorted that out, and now, due to the vagaries of transatlantic business law, the company is, I believe, held for me in trust by Marguerite, because she's a U.S. resident, but I am technically, or rather, I am in actuality the owner, but in reality we, we co-run it, so... We have bi bimonthly meetings where one month we'll ha- sit down with our editorial staff, the next month we'll sit down with our admin staff. And we're in the process now of two years in having finally put out all the various fires that always break out when you do something like this and start to move on and do new and interesting projects.
0: So before we continue down a few lines of questioning, I realize that some people may not actually be all that familiar with Escape artist and its various subsidiaries. So, and, and frankly, although I'm familiar with pieces of it, I don't quite understand how it all fits together because there's lots of names and escape shows up more than once. And so, Mm -hmm. so what are all the units of escape artist and how do they fit together?
1: Okay. We have four podcasts. Um, and running them down in kind of order of longevity to the most recent acquisition. We started off with Escape Pod, which does weekly science fiction short stories. And then the second show, the one which I came aboard as host, getting on for nine years ago now, Pseudopod does horror fiction. Then a couple of years after that, we launched Podcastle, which does fantasy. And earlier this year, we uh, acquired Cast of Wonders, which is um, a YA short fiction show. And also earlier this year, we launched Mothership Zeta, which is our quarterly pdf digital magazine
0: all right so and cast of wonders is is mark marguerite that's marguerites right that's right yeah okay so all of them are they're all fiction uh shows and or magazines and so all short fiction obviously Mm -hmm. um so i want to let's talk a little bit about uh the business of this because i think a lot of people out there are fascinated by sort of the business of short fiction um in, in large part because there's this conception slash misconception that short fiction is like a losing proposition always and that you know making it profitable is really hard or keeping it alive is really hard and we see these constant churn of kickstarter campaigns and that kind of stuff so i mean just from a strictly business perspective i mean how much of a challenge has it been for you to take to, to make these things work a fairly huge one um
1: I talk an awful lot about how we have one massive asset, which is also a massive weakness. And, and that's that we've been around a ridiculously long time. Uh, I mean, Escape Pods just celebrated episode 500. Pseudopod has it coming up. Podcastle can see that, can see it rapidly approaching. We've been active in various forms for either just under or just over a decade. And that means that we have a tremendously established audience base. And I mean, we, we are creative commons aside from MZ. And as a result of that, and as a result of the fact that we're currently a non we rely entirely on listener donations. So the asset side of that is because we've been around so long, we have a very, very dedicated group of listeners and a very dedicated group of subscribers who really want to keep us around. The downside to it is we actually slightly predate pretty much every other fiction podcast on the planet. And as a result of that, we're part of the landscape. And it's very difficult at times. And that's both from a personal and from a business point of view to deal with that, because we've seen ourselves passed over quite a lot. And it's never with malice, but it's always because we have committed this sin of consistency. We've been around a really long time, and as a result, people tend to see through us. So that really gives us this pretty solid financial foundation, but we sacrifice that with this weird lack of visibility
0: when there's certainly a trend i i I, it's probably a trend in every segment of life but i notice it particularly in the science fiction and fantasy world which is like we are obsessed with the new thing Um, it's like you know the debut book is much more likely to get attention than the you know 15th simon r green novel um that's just sort of the it seems just the nature of the beast Uh, i guess that's kind of what you're talking about right That's absolutely it. And I'd be curious to get your thoughts um, on the crowdfunding part of this. Uh, I don't escape artist has never done a Kickstarter or anything like that, right? No, we've
1: come really close a couple of times, but nothing has ever gone public. Um, I, I had a Kickstarter as this bizarre kind of Moby Dick project for about three years and it started off with a very specific focus, and by the time we got to the point where we were ready to execute it, it was doing nine different things I mean seriously, it was ludicrous. it was like um overhaul the websites, launch two new shows, maybe buy me a hat'll we'll do some merch in the, you know just it, it was a grocery list of individual projects which on their own would have been a stretch and together just looked ludicrous, so we never went ahead with it.
0: Yeah. I think there's this, um, it's certainly a, a feeling I've had at times as I've watched, you know, various magazines, um, mostly print magazines. I think I, I'm sure there have been some podcasts, but podcasting usually tends to be sort of an add on, uh, or yeah. a stretch goal to a magazine's Kickstarter efforts or crowdfunding efforts. And I, as I watch it happen, I've, and we've seen the situation where they, you know, they, they kickstart once and they come back again and again, and it's a constant churn of kickstarting to, to stay alive. Um, It's just an interesting model to me, and something I I don't know that we've fully figured out yet how sustainable it is as a way to run a business.
1: That actually dovetails very, very neatly with something which I've been thinking about for a while. Because I mean, I I followed the the same projects that you have, and I think I, I I like to describe myself as belligerently positive when it comes to to short fiction as a form and as a place where you know businesses can set up simply because so many magazines. Try this. So many magazines try and put this together. And I i firmly believe that at the point we're at now, if you draw a straight line between that and the point we're at, even five years ago, you're seeing a constant refinement of business models and approaches. And I, I, I get slightly kind of BBC4 historical doc, documentary about this because I, I think what we might be looking at is some form of kind of relatively imminent Council of Nicaea situation with crowdfunding, where there are a lot of people who have had an awful lot of success with this fund yearly approach. And I think we're quite soon, we're, we are coming up quite soon on whatever comes next. And sooner or later, you're going to look at one of these projects that works out how to sustain itself constantly, maybe through crowdfunding, maybe through some kind of derivation of it. But I'm, we're in this really odd period of frantic, Business evolution, which I find very interesting to look at.
0: I I agree. Interesting to me that Patreon has become almost uh, seemingly like a um a subscription collection service, as opposed to like m- actually. Exactly. Maybe what I see it often used as a way to act. You know, so for example, um, an author like Monica Byrne, her Patreon is is clearly a you are a patron of the arts, right? You are essentially helping her, um. Fun, some artistic endeavors that she just kind of wants to do, which is which is one model that's that very much patron of the arts model. And then you'll see like, you know, a magazine that has a Patreon where it really is just a way to collect subscriptions without having to create their own architecture to collect subscriptions. And I think the way we differentiate between those two is sort of changing oh, exactly. the way we. How how we feel about it, you know, because some of these things I get a little anxious about. Like, well, if it doesn't work, why should I keep funding the crowd? The the why should I keep crowdfunding it for you every year? But if it's really just a subscription, and I I find it
1: really interesting as well because you're absolutely right. Fundamentally, it's a subscription service, but I I don't think I've seen anyone describe it that way, and that mystifies me because that instantly undercuts. I would imagine for a lot of people, the uncertainty that, that, that you're talking about. If you are the, the head of a project and you go to, you go to crowdfunding and go, we need money for a year and we'll see you in 12 months time. Justifiably, a lot of people are going to go, really? If you're the head of a project and you go to crowdfunding and go, um, you want to subscribe for a year? Everyone will instinctively, or the vast majority of people will instinctively go, yeah, right. It's like, I mean, this is where my background in retail comes in. I, I, it was always really interesting to me because we used to weirdly we used to have a lot of books which were five ninety nine and a lot of books that were four ninety nine anything five ninety nine never sold four ninety nine would always sell because despite them the minimal price difference, people would look at it and see a larger bargain and it's all about language and how you correctly phrase something and almost try and ensure that your readers and customers have to commit minimal possible effort to understanding what it is you're doing. That's so true. The
0: business that I'm in, in my, my day job, we have a, a, a model where every year you, you, you have to pay your dues to be a member of the association. Mm-hmm. And that dues billing period, uh, you have, we send you an invoice and you, you pay it. Uh, and if you don't pay it, we cut you off and then you pay it, Late, which is essentially how it works. But what's amazing to me is that this organization has been running since 1910 and we've never created wow. a mechanism where your dues are automatically renewed, right? It's, it's right. Oh, so there's God. this idea. It's the same thing with Kickstarter in that, you know, when you go back every year, you're essentially saying, okay, it's time to pay your subscription this year, but, but it, but it's, it feels painful, right? Because you're, oh, you're asking, you're asking me for money. If you just automatically renewed people and said, you backed our Kickstarter and now your subscription continues unless you tell us you don't want it to uh people wouldn't have the same reaction i think the same negative reaction to the crowdfunding and i exactly let me talk to you a little bit about uh sort of artistic direction with escape artist uh a, as a whole uh i know that i had mer on the show here uh, a couple months ago and we we talked about mm-hmm. the new magazine and how it was sort of geared toward this i mean she kept using the word fun which is you know impossible to to. to define, but um, some sort of whimsy associated with that magazine. But what about the, the podcast? I mean, do you have a particular editorial direction you feel like each of those places goes other than the general, you know, science fiction, horror, fantasy, or are you uh, omni-voracious?
1: To be honest with you, we are pretty much omni Um I mean, we, we have, I, I've, I've worked with a lot of editors in a lot of different capacities, and I firmly believe we've got five of the best editorial teams on the planet, and it's really interesting to see, because we've just had a little bit of a staff shifter round as well. We've brought some new people aboard at Escape Pod, um, SB Divia, Tina Connolly in particular. And uh we've just brought Jen Albert aboard at PodCastle, as Rachel K. Jones has had to step away to focus on her graduate studies. Um And it's always really interesting to me seeing how... Not so much how the sausage is made, but what the sausage looks like when it comes out the other end. Because... I I have a very interesting position at Escape artist in that I don't do anything editorial. I, I show up after all this is done. And as a result of that, any show I get to host is a really pleasant surprise because I get to read the story. And it, it's why so many of my end caps are me going, that was great. Here are the ways I really like that. And because we have these these five teams and because they're all so different and so individualistic, we do a pretty good job, I think, of covering lots of different tones. I mean, the show I can speak to most directly, inevitably, is Pseudopod, because it's the one-on-one every week. And Sean Garrett and Alex Hofelich, and I apologise if I've pronounced Alex's second name wrong, do this incredible combination of really almost academic, scholarly, old-school horror, and very modern, very different stuff. I mean, I've just taken two weeks off, and I've come back. And the first two shows I got to do were a William Gibson and a Roger Zalazny, which just made my day. And then the one which I I recorded yesterday, which I think goes out tomorrow, not tomorrow, next week, pardon me, uh, is a John Padgett story. And John is, is just superb and completely modern. And getting the opportunity to go from stuff which is a few decades old to now, from a personal point of view, is incredibly educational, both as a critic and as a critical writer and as a writer. And from a Listeners' point of view, like I say, I I hope we cover
0: a lot of ground. That's neat. How, how, out of curiosity, how much short fiction do you read that does not make it onto your shows?
1: We have huge amounts of slush wranglers. I would, I don't have the particular number to hand, but I would suggest we we have a good couple of dozen slush wranglers and. To give, I can give you a fun statistic. When Mothership Zeta first opened, we got 850 submissions in one week. To the tune of, we broke submittable for a couple of hours, which I don't think even the New York Times has ever managed. And that filtered down to about five or six. Um, we've actually, all four shows and MZ are also on pro rates now. And that's been a very noticeable increase in uh, submission volume that's been brought with it um we get a couple of hundred stories pretty much constantly the hopper is always full there's always stuff to be wrangled through so we we deal with a lot of traffic and we spend an awful lot of time pulling the best possible stuff we can out of it
0: i would imagine things like that william gibson though are that is that stuff your editorial staff is going out and finding and asking to reprint or did that get i i just Curious if William Gibson like sent it along and said, "You guys want to reprint this?" I, <laughs> um,
1: the vast majority of the time, basically it's Alex doing his best impression of Indiana Jones. He and and Sean both work in very different ways with um, authorial estates and with and, and with um, agency companies, and both of them have done tremendous work in the last couple of years, in particular, negotiating with estates for short stories and seasoning their yearly runs through with one or two of these really fun, really interesting, big name pieces. So that's very much the other side of it. The vast majority of the stuff which we get um, is submitted to us directly, but we do reach out and, and get in contact with the states from time to time. Case in point, Norm Sherman over at Escape Pod got uh, a Theodore Sturgeon story for episode 500. And, you know, we always try and aim for something big for the big numbers in particular. That's That's
0: neat. Uh, that's kind of a fun job too. Like going out and I think probably like like literary estate hunting would be kind of a fun thing to do. Oh god, yeah, Alex loves it. He absolutely Frust- frustrating as hell, but but fun. Yes,
1: and he he gets frustrated as well. But no, Alex and Sean in particular really really dig that side of it. That's neat. Uh,
0: yeah. So SB uh, Divya, I actually met her the other day. Awesome. Um, yeah, she was in town for that uh, writing uh, retreat I was talking about earlier, and I had a chance to meet her and. Of course, she's got a novella coming from Tor.com here like next week, I think, or yeah. So I'm excited about that. Have you read Runtime? Yeah, yeah, I loved it. Yeah. I think I saw you. I was looking through your blog and I think I saw that you had mentioned it on there. Uh so speaking of the Tor.com imprint, uh or Tor.com publishing, I should say. Um, so I I, I noticed that you and Lee Harris go back a ways. We do. You you had a project in like two thousand, like the mid two thousands that you all worked on, like some kind of magazine?
1: yeah um basically that there is this this weird kind of almost world Newton situation going on with a small writers group in New York because I lived in York uh, for 18 years and Lee uh still does and we both ended up as part of uh, the same writing group and so did people like David Tollerman, who's had six or seven. I think, books out through Angry Robot, and he's got another couple on the way. He's a big part of uh, Rosarian Publishing's plans for their comic site, and they just successfully funded their Indiegogo. And we would meet in this charmingly dilapidated, because there really is no other kind in York pub, once every Tuesday night, and we people who had written would bring stories, and they'd be discussed and pulled apart and, and put back together. And after a while, Lee... Took me to one side and went, I want to start a magazine. You're good with nonfiction. Do you want to be the non-fiction editor? And that was basically it. And I ran for about three years. And for about two years of those, we were pretty regular. We were briefly in print, and we were in print around the same time as the global recession, which is the worst possible time to do anything like that. So we shifted to PDF quite fast, and we were able to churn out our weekly PDF. And I remained nonfiction editor when Lee stepped away to, uh, go do stuff with Angry Robot. I took over as editor, which neatly corresponded with a whole bunch of of stuff in my life going completely sideways. So that combined with the overhaul, combined with the loss of staff and the inevitable. I mean, you, you know what it's like when an editor leaves a magazine, inevitably they take a good chunk of their, their talent with them. Uh, so that was a struggle for a long time. And ultimately we put it to bed, but I still have very, very close friends who worked on hub. I mean, Lee, Phil Lunt, who is, who was a graphic designer and is now, I believe, still the actor president of the British Fantasy Society and also, magnificently, a character actor. I think he's now been killed in four separate time periods on uh, period drama over here. He's very excited about that. Um, (laughs) Oh, Phil's great. And he's one of those guys where once you've seen him, you can't unsee him. I, I've, I've been sitting there watching an episode of this kind of 1920s detective thing and Phil's wandered on in the background and I've just wanted to leap into the screen and chat to him about Morecambe and Wise. It's been great.
0: So he's the uh, the Sean Bean of British period drama?
1: Oh yes, yes. Uh, and he has excellent serious face. A lot of the time Phil just gets to stand in the back of scene looking serious and he digs that. Um, but no, Lee and I are, 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 are really, really tight and I, we, we help. Uh, margaret and i co-ran the redshirt unit for FantasyCon for two years those were the two years that he ran it as well and um because when you know when he stepped over to tour uh you know i i stayed very much in contact and yeah he's he's a good dude and it's very weird like i say seeing uh people like lee and people like david who all started in the same tiny ass little room as me going on to doing huge things. It's, it's a little bit like having a common superhero origin story.
0: Yeah. You know, it's, it's a couple of things there. I, I, I'm a big believer in associating yourself with uh, people who uh, have all have ambition and have this desire to do things. It's amazing how they all can manage to collectively have that success um sort of reinforcing each other I, I this is like to me the great advantage of writing groups and other mm-hmm. sorts of gatherings like that it's got less to do with the the craft although i guess that that can be helpful as well but more of like just being around other people that are trying to succeed at something and sort of that collective will that comes from that um i think it's very important
1: yeah absolutely and i mean it it speaks the, the success of, of kind of Lee and David in particular speaks very clearly to that. They've, they've both gone on to do fantastic stuff. And Lee is still as, just as fond of ridiculously awful puns as he was 15 years ago.
0: If yeah. not slightly more so. Yeah, I think it's the one thing Lee and I really have in common is our love of, of, of punning, particularly bad, <laughs> bad puns, but, uh, I actually think I may have a record for the most unfollows from bad puns that I tweet out. But Like, for example, when I, I did that, uh, I punned everybody's name that was nominated for the Clark Award. Mm-hmm. And uh, that didn't go over so well. well. A lot of people didn't enjoy that.
1: Oh, sometimes Twitter is a tough room. It is. It's, a, it's very tough.
0: No, but the, the, your comment about editors, you hear about gatekeepers and, and, and the networking side of the game. And it, it's a reality. I struggle with that a lot, uh,
1: and I mean, go, for how can I put this? For the longest time, I had real trouble with the fact that, like I say, I was in a writing group with these guys, and you know, Lee's gone off to tour, and David's got books galore, and you know, I'm on my dark days. It feels like I'm I'm the head of an invisible empire, and the confidence side of things is the thing which I struggle with the most. All right. I did struggle with the most, you know, taking over at EA has been very, very interesting and often very healthy for my confidence because yeah, there is a huge part of this industry, which is inevitably who, you know, the huger part of it for me is how long you stick around. I I, I sometimes view my career as almost a living example of, of the, the gag in, in Mars Attacks, you know, with uh, the, the the general going, see, I told you if I stuck around long enough, they'd promote me. Yeah. I, I have honestly got jobs because I've been the last person sticking my hand up. My, my all-time record. I love this. My initial in for the Doctor Who RPG was I was in when the first episode of the Sarah Jane Adventures was on, and the then- head of the company wasn't, so I taped it for him. And that was the icebreaker. Mm -hmm. And mailing Angus this videotape led to him going, so have you done any RPG work? Well, yes, I have, and off we go. And the gatekeeper side of things, especially as a cis white dude, is, is something I'm always very hesitant to commit fully to. The being in the right place at the right time thing, that's very real, and that's often a pisser.
0: It's it's less this uh this fixed game as much as it is being being good enough and being in the right place at the right time to show that you're good enough. You know, I, <laughs> we always say like great you know write a great book and write a great story and it'll get published, right? That's there's some truth to that, but really the really the the sad answer is write a story or a book that's good enough and and happen to have the right opportunity to get somebody to read it. And I think that's The biggest challenge is you know i work in politics and i often get a lot of grief about uh sort of the pay-to-play game in politics right you have to contribute to to politicians to get them to pay attention to you and i always say like well that's not really true uh the truth is you contribute to their campaign so they answer your phone call nine times out of ten they still ignore what you have to say yeah uh but but they do pick up the phone and i think it's this it's true in every industry and and true in publishing as well it's um you know, those, those relationships get somebody to pick up the phone, but what you show them still has to be good enough. And I think that's, that's the challenge I think that people run into is they either think it's all about the relationship and it doesn't have to be good enough, or they worry so much about how good it is that they, they forget to pay attention to the other parts of success, which is positioning yourself to be in the right place at the
1: right time. Exactly. And it's, it's so easy to polish a story until it's this you know, amazing burnished jewel, but you got to show it to people. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, there's an interesting cultural divide which I run into from time to time, which is Brits are often very bad at that. You know, it's one of the the awful stereotypes, but I've lost count of the amount of British authors who felt a bit odd about, you know, promoting their work and been terribly apologetic about it. And you can't do that because the moment you do that, the moment you second guess what you're doing is the moment you hamstring yourself without waiting for time to do it for you and i i find it very interesting that there is this needle to thread between being between apologizing for taking up space and kicking the door in and screaming you know everybody look at me because i'm amazing and so you know the middle ground between that for me often levels out as persistence you just keep talking and you keep doing the work and sooner or later the simple act of accretion gets you some of the recognition and some of the progress you're looking for and as long as you're you're keeping that forward momentum and as long as you keep showing up eventually you're going to be in the right place
0: at the right time yeah one of my favorite games is to try to make emma newman say something amazing about herself (laughs) how's that going (laughs) it's a work in progress Uh, yes she's a great example of the british phenomenon of um the, you know, don't like to to talk about how great you are or, you know, you are yourself. And so, but I enjoy giving her, um, ur- urging her toward that. She, she likes, she blushes quite a bit. It's a great, it's great fun. <laughs> so I, I imagine though, that one of the great things uh, we talk about the self-promotion model. One of the great things is to put, to put yourself behind a business because I imagine it's much easier to self-promote your business of escape artist than it is to promote promote Alistair Stewart, right? I mean, that's got to be kind of freeing is you can just be out there and... Well,
1: this speaks to my earlier point about how, you know, consistency can also often mean invisibility. We have this huge back catalogue and this huge background and we're a colossal company and in many ways. I mean, we I think we have about 75 employees, which is just ludicrous. Um, But at the same time, we're a podcast. We're, we are an almost... In fact, no, we are a uniformly digital organization. And in particular with genre, there is still a tendency to look at that and go, really? Jolly good. I'll be over here reading something made out of a tree. And there's a lot of instinctive pushback against that. And that's hard to deal with. But the flip side to that is that by promoting the company and by talking about it, I'm managing to do something in public, which is not me talking about me so it's it's kind of differently hard i distract myself from the the kind of the the constant self-confidence struggle by talking about something larger than me because that needs more attention and i kind of drag along behind it and that works out a lot of the time
0: you talk about that resist reader resistance to you know things that are digital and i would tend to agree with you but it seems to me that there are a lot of people who listen to fiction and that is what they do. Mm-hmm. It, it seems to me that a few years ago, there was a, and Scott Sigler is a, is a great example in Murr's early career and Matt Wallace and some of these other folks who really got a start in audio podcasting, fiction podcasting. Uh, and it, there are a lot, there's like a whole segment of people online that that's what they do. They, there's a community around that, uh, do you find that to be true? Or is it less true today than it might have been when podcasting was still young?
1: Oh, no, it, it's absolutely true. Um, we, we had this really cool thing happen a couple of weeks ago. Um, I, I am probably the fan of found footage movies. It's just me. You know, they basically make them for me at this point. And I, that, that format is one I find really interesting. And towards the end of last year, I noticed the the audio equivalent of that, which is the format that Serial used an awful lot, has started to be used in horror fiction podcasts. And the stuff's amazing. I mean, shows like Lone Town, uh, Black Tapes, The Message, do incredible stuff with that format. And I've started going out and actively looking for this stuff. And there's one particular show, Archive 81, which is only about three episodes in. And the basic premise is lovely. It's a kid on his um, summer break from university who takes a short-term job cataloging in chronological order this huge archive of recordings made, all of which are interviews with inhabitants of a tower block. And they're not in any kind of order, so obviously the first thing he listens to is the horrifying satanic ritual that was the last thing that got recorded, and that puts a little bit of a kink in it. And it's a great show, it's really fun, it's presented beautifully, and I reached out to them. And, and said, you know, you, you guys do great work. I, can, I, can I interview you? And, and they wrote back and went, you're Alistair from Pseudopod. We love you. You're like a huge influence on us. And I've been chatting to them ever since. And there is this wonderful combination that you get, certainly in genre fiction podcasting at the moment, of these people who all strike out across the, the wasteland themselves, and they're all chopping their individual paths through through the grass. But they're also all really aware of everybody else. And I love that that's the case. And I love that we have this quiet, not quite public second renaissance in genre fiction podcasting going on, where you've got all those guys and people like Aaron Mankey, who doesn't do fiction, but he's very definitely fiction adjacent, all of whom are heading in the same direction and all of whom talk to one another. So there is The community has never really gone away, but I do think it's restructuring in a really fun and interesting way right now.
0: I have to think Night Vale had some influence on that as well and their huge success. I'm really glad you brought them up,
1: because Alice Isn't Dead, their second project, is superb and so completely defiantly different to Night Vale. I'm really excited to see them turn into an umbrella, because they've talked an awful lot about how Alice Isn't Dead is just the first of, of a series of other projects they have coming on, and you kind of put them at one end and Archive 81 at the other, and Ours Paradoxica, which is this just brilliant time travel audio drama podcast, kind of halfway between them and us in the middle, and you have this incredible scope of huge, rich, fun genre fiction being presented in audio form. It's a really good time to be doing what I do.
0: Do you listen to novels in audio as well or not?
1: Weirdly, no. Um... I listen to audio dramas. I'm, I'm a big fan of, uh, there's a company called Big Finish that does a lot of the Doctor Who stuff and they have an awful lot of kind of spin off projects from that. And I love those, but books I, I zone out on I, I can't concentrate the way I can on a podcast, which is really odd. Uh,
0: yeah, I do audio fiction, audio books, um, during my commute. I have about a, I don't know, 30 to 45 minute, you know, each way commute, uh, during the, and that's when I listen to, either podcasts or audiobooks, depending. I, I do find that I can't do an audiobook that's longer than nine hours. Uh, I can concentrate on a topic for nine hours over a week, but if it's any longer than that, I just get super bored and I have to, I have to check out of it. But I do feel like I, you know, I've looked at sort of like, you know, um, some royalty statements of friends and, and audio royalties are up. I mean, way up and, and becoming more and more of a thing. It's, it feels like you know the the smartphone revolution obviously it it took a little while but i feel like that disruptive technology and 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 now that we can carry an audiobook with us everywhere we go where it used to just be in our car or at our stereo at home is really starting to catch on podcasts as well but it just seems like everybody's getting into this game now it's not 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 just a a couple of fringe things anymore
1: and you're you're starting to see really interesting people noticing it as well. I mean, going back to Aaron Mankey, who I talked about earlier uh, Laura is in active development as a TV show with Gail Ann Hood. and that is fantastic because I mean Aaron has this incredible Rod Serling-esque approach to what he does and I really hope if it ends up being a documentary series they put him front and centre because he has an incredibly distinctive writer's voice but at the same time, I'm also really hopeful that they take the basic idea and do something completely fun and, and different and weird with it. And that almost harks back to the very brief kind of podcast publishing rush that you had, um, getting on for a decade ago. But I think builds again on the sense of community that I've been talking about and the huge variation in material. And I, and almost what I was talking about earlier about how we're getting to the point where whatever comes next after annual crowdfunding models starts to appear. There's a sense of this all building to something. Something is going to break through, and I don't know what it is, but I'm really excited to see what it is.
0: So on that note, so you now have um, four podcasts and a and a print magazine, uh, digital print magazine. Are you considering adding more to the network at some point, or are you stable for now?
1: Yes, we are. We've got very preliminary plans in place for other projects. What we want to do, uh, and this, this is very much one of the kind of two primary focuses of the company at the moment, we've expanded an awful lot this year. We've added an, a new show. We've added MZ. And the last thing we want to do is overreach ourselves. So we do have plans for other shows, but we're looking two years down the line at the earliest for them. And as a result, the ideas we have now might not be the ideas we have then, but we're we're not done. We we've got more. We, we've got more shows we'd like to roll out for sure.
0: Anyway, uh, Alistair, I really appreciate you coming on. This is a lot of fun. Thanks for having me. This has been great. What's what's the what's the main hub for the escape artist world? Is there like a place they can go to find each of your different areas? Probably the best place to go is going to be
1: the escape artist's Twitter account. All four shows and MZ have Twitter accounts of their own, but at EA Podcasts is news and links for everything. So that's probably the best place to hit right now.
0: Alright, there you go. And I also suggest everybody go follow Alistair as well. Uh he has uh one hundred and eleven thousand tweets, so you know you're gonna get some good value.
1: <laughs> oh that's such a stupid
0: number. Oh god <laughs> <laughs> uh, Anyway, I appreciate you coming on. Thanks for having me. Alright, this has been Rocket Talk.